Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to another United States Study Center webinar. I'm Simon Jackman, a Professor of Political Science at the University of Sydney and the CEO of the United States Study Center. Um, and as is customary, we begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the US Study Center and the University of Sydney stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Today, we're so fortunate uh, to be joined by uh, Jonathan Swan, who is an Australian um, but went to the United States and, and has found his way to the very center of, of power and politics in Washington, covering the White House and uh, American politics more broadly uh, for Axios, um, uh, still a relatively new online news service that roared into prominence um, over the last couple, couple of years with Jonathan's scoops being part of the engine that really has attracted a lot of attention and a lot of eyeballs to, to Axios, um, which is quite a feat for, for, a, uh, for a boy from Sydney or a boy from New South Wales um, to, 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 to pull that off. Uh, Jonathan's career in journalism began here in Australia uh, with, in the Fairfax stable, uh, but he had his eyes set on bigger things. Uh, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere sort of mindset, I suppose, and, and um, went off to the US with that ambition of, of not just being an Australian correspondent, but being uh, a, an American correspondent. And in Axios found a tremendous vehicle to realize that ambition. Um, if you've been following American politics <laughs> over the last couple of years, and if you're with us today, you have been, um, some of the big stories over the last couple of years in the Trump presidency have been Jonathan Scoops. Um, for instance, um, the news that the US would pull out of the Paris Climate Treaty, the news that Jerusalem would be recognized as Israel's capital, uh, that Steve Bannon was being fired. Uh, they're just some of the stories that, that Jonathan brought uh, to light. And indeed, you know, you'll often see him on cable news channels in the United States giving the story, sometimes, you know, helping to break the story there, but incredibly prominent, incredibly sought after, incredibly busy. And for that reason, Jonathan, we're enormously grateful for your time this morning. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for giving us an hour out of, you know, every day is a busy day over there, but thank you so much in advance. And what I'd like to do, though, I'm going to hand over to Bruce Volpe, uh, non-resident senior fellow at the U.S. Study Center. Um, Bruce is just you, indefatigable. Yeah, he, he's everywhere for us at the Study Center, does a ton of media and commentary for us here in Australia, and goes back quite a ways with Jonathan. And I thought it'd be incredibly sort of fitting and appropriate uh, to, to, for Bruce to have the honours today of, of for leading uh, off our, our first half of today where it'll be a conversation uh, between Bruce and Jonathan. So, gentlemen, um, over to you, Bruce. Uh, the floor is yours. Okay. Oh, thank you so much, Simon. Jonathan, thank you again. I know it's the middle of your workday. It's just after 8 o'clock in the east, 
and uh, the president is up until after midnight. And so, so uh, you can join us in a cup of coffee as you uh, prepare to, to do the rounds. Uh, but just thank you again uh, for me from the Simon, the center for joining us. Um, to start, just tell us about Axios, um, its mission, um, how it fits in today's media landscape and, uh, and why you enjoy working there. We don't have anything like Axios uh, right. or Politico here and, and your, right. your wife, Betsy Woodruff Swan is uh, with Politico. Are they the future? Is this where journalism is, modern journalism is headed? Well, um, thank you for the very nice introductions and thanks for having me. Um, I think just to start, maybe I don't assume that everyone on this call uh, on this Zoom knows what Axios is. So um, the people who founded Axios came out of traditional media. So Mike Allen and Jim Vanderhei um, were big reporters at the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Time Magazine. And in 2006, they saw an opening for political coverage, a much more aggressive insider um, uh, political coverage uh, across government, not just White House, but really aggressively covering every single agency of the federal government. So they started a company called Politico, it was three people in uh, Jim Vanderhei's sunroom, and they built it to, I think they've now 700 staff. They've got offices, they, they replicated the model. They've got a Brussels operation covering the European Parliament. They've got state house operations around the country. And they very quickly started to make a mark and, you know, frankly, on many stories, beat the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, by just having expert uh, subject matter experts covering the beats. And they, you know, they built a really successful model. They left Politico in 2016 and founded Axios. And the, the premise of Axios was we have really good or the people who run media outlets have very good data on what people read. And the sad thing when you're a journalist like me is most readers read about 5% of what we write, which means but both from a story point of view, but also within each story, the first couple of paragraphs, and then, you know, they, they don't read much further. So Jim and Mike engineered Axios around that reality. Uh, they came up with this idea of, they call it smart brevity, which is, here's what you need to know. Here's why it matters very quick. And then if you want to go deeper, you can, and that's within the architecture of the website. Um, so it, look, it, it took off really well. I, I, I suspected it would because these guys know how to build successful media companies, which is quite different from most people running media companies in this era. And so it was a pretty easy decision to join them. And also for me, I just come off covering the Trump campaign in 2016 and was one of probably only a few reporters. Most reporters had spent all their time sourcing up with the Clintons. And I sort of didn't try to bother competing there because there was no point. A lot of these reporters had known the Clintons for 20 years. So I sort of ran in the other direction and not because I thought Trump would win, but just for the hell of it. And it was, you know, probably going to be a bit easier to get well sourced there. So I, you know, the day after the election sort of was like, Oh, fairly well positioned to cover this White House and they hired me and, you know, Mike Allen has a very expansive Rolodex. So it's helped me, you know, expand my sources as well. It's, it's just fantastic. And Mike Allen, you're, you're on Politico in the run up to uh, Obama taking off, it was, became the must read, you know, if, uh, for what was happening inside the White House and so forth. And to expand it, 
for Axios to be born. And then you've set new, um, you're reaching new horizons in readers. But as you said, you branched into a different angle on what was happening in Washington. I really want to ask you about that because, and this question really comes from a lot of your Australian colleagues. They came to Washington with Scott Morrison in the Oval Office, having a press conference, and they had never seen anything like that before. Yeah. And, and we have never seen anything like the way this president and the press interact before. Yeah. And, I, and you weren't trained in this kind of <laughs> take no prisoners right. uh, media landscape. So right. what, was it, what is it like coming out of the Sydney Morning Herald, yeah. Australian journalism, you go to Washington, you cover US for Australia, and, and this happens, how, how do you adjust to that? It, Again, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. Right. What has it been like? Well, it's been advantageous for me because um, he, Trump had no connections to the Washington establishment, really. Very few, anyway. And, and nor did his inner circle. So if Hillary Clinton had won the election, I don't think I would have been breaking that many stories because she has an institution around her um, an infrastructure, a fortress. You have to go through a gatekeeper to get to a gatekeeper to get to a gatekeeper. It's all, you know, everything is approved. You know, they, they actually have a proper policy process. Imagine that when they come up with a policy, they actually go through the deputies level, they go up to the principals level. With Trump, you know, there's about 10 people who matter around him who have real insight into what's going on. And then there's a circle of sort of hangers on, um, grifters, all sorts of other uh, people in the sort of general orbit. It's not a huge list of people, but once you know them and once you understand where the fault lines are, uh, who's, you know, going after whom, you can very uh, effectively extract information. And so I was, it was a level playing field. I came with a set of reporting skills, you know, getting people to talk to you, knowing how to sh uh, shake loose information. But I didn't have to compete against people who had, you know, all these institutional relationships. So it was actually quite advantageous. And in the first year of the Trump White House, it was just a leak fest. I mean, I could get, there was an Oval Office meeting with Trump and I could get three or four people, you know, if it was a 10 person meeting, leaking, real time leaking from these meetings. And we've never seen anything like that. I talked to my bosses who've covered the White House for 20, 25 years, never, you know, in their memory uh, has anything like this happened. Um, and I don't believe it. I mean, I'm fairly decent student of American history. I don't think we've had this level of, I mean, the John Bolton book that just came out this week is a perfect example to have that level of access to the president as a national security advisor, being in that level of meetings and that level of, contempt for the person you served to betray him by writing a 500 page book revealing in your view what an incompetent reckless narcissist he is i don't believe we will see that again we we may never see something of that sort again we certainly won't see it if joe biden's president yeah i was going to ask you is biden yeah. do you think biden is going to be hillary like in terms of the institutions and dealing with yes. the press it, yes, it, very so much that, so. It's formal and everything. Yeah, and, and I've already got that experience dealing with his people. And, and then on Trump, so this goes on for three years and this happens, right. until, but they don't fix it, right? I mean, how come they he don't He doesn't want fix to fix it? it? He has oh, no why? desire. Oh, how come he doesn't yeah. want to fix it? Because it's he so doesn't like... So the thing to understand, look, uh, Trump 
to understand how he's operated as president, you sort of have to understand his day, his work day. They have constructed, so early on in, the, in his presidency, um, that Ryan's Priebus, who was his first chief of staff, was scheduling him meetings at eight or nine o'clock in the morning. And he was getting very irritated by that because he didn't want to be down in, in the Oval at that time. So yeah. they have constructed this schedule to suit how Donald Trump wants to do the job, which is, so he, he, he doesn't sleep very much. So he wakes up at sort of 5.30 in the morning. The first five and a half hours of his day until 11 a.m., he spends up in the residence watching TV and making phone calls. His first meeting of the day is around 11 or 11.30, which is his intelligence briefing. And then often his official workday will end around four o'clock and he's back in the residence. When he's in his residence, he is completely unsupervised. There's no, there's no one loitering, hanging over him, structuring him in any way, shape or form. He is receiving input from media. He's the most media obsessed president we maybe uh, America has ever had. I'm confident of that. And he's also receiving input from casual phone calls. He takes advice from all number of people. Um, like to, to help understand how he, how things come about. I remember when, you know, he had um, a woman named Kirsten Nielsen as his secretary of Homeland Security. Now she didn't have a great relationship with the president, but she, you know, you had to feel some level of sympathy for her because she would find out about these, these ideas that he, you know, would maybe just say them out loud, you know, we're going to send armed troops down to the border. And, you know, Kirsten being a fairly sort of traditional uh, Bush Republican who's sort of schooled in policy process. Well, how did this idea, you know, filter up to the president? Was there a, you know, a policy meeting? No, he was on the phone the night before with, you know, a Fox commentator and got the idea and then announced it. And then he announces it and the machinery of government scutters around trying to make it happen. Catch up with it. Yes. So it's all back to front. Like uh, the way he met with Kim Jong-un is a perfect example of that. In a normal administration, firstly, there's a reason why previous presidents hadn't met with Kim Jong-un just because it was seen as a huge concession. But even if there was a meeting with Kim Jong-un, there would have been deliberations at the lower level to go up a level. There would have been heavy, heavy negotiations between the two sides um, before the meeting. And by the time you actually get to the meeting, it would have been entirely choreographed. You would have had an agreement on what the output was going to be at the end. So there was no risk of embarrassment. Trump's the opposite. Trump said, get me in the room with him and through my sheer force of charisma and personality and brilliance, I will secure the world's greatest deal. So his team goes over to Hanoi and Singapore with no earthly idea what's going to happen in the room and just hoping that Trump doesn't give away the shop to Kim Jong-un. So it's completely the inverse of a normal um, White House. And, and our uh, Kirsten Nielsen, by the way, is going to be an advisor, is an advisor to this government, the government of Australia on cybersecurity issues that that came out yesterday. So we'll see. I imagine yeah. she'll be treated a little bit better than she was treated in Washington. Um, but are you, so are you and other journalists, senior journalists, well-placed, are you used by these players to send messages and, you know, smoke signals back and forth across the administration as to how a policy issue should play out? I mean, are you- well, Every leak, every leak is a manipulation. 
you know that every leak of every administration is a manipulation. The difference with the Trump administration is so Obama, what I understand from talking to reporters who covered Obama, they had these beautifully packaged press rollouts. They'd pick their favorite reporter at the New York times and give them a big package and have the big thing that doesn't happen under Trump. The stuff I get's not packaged up by the press shop. It's cowboy wild, rough and tumble grabbing leaks and yeah, sure, there are all sorts of different reasons why people leak. Sometimes they leak because they're horrified by a policy that's about to be announced and by exposing it to the light of day, they think they can kill it. Sometimes they leak because they're you know, motivated out of personal malice. Sometimes they leak just for the hell of it. I, there are some people that I would almost put in the anarchist category in the Trump administration who... I haven't been able to fathom why they've leaked me things. There's no strategic benefit for it. I think they just enjoy leaking. Mm. Um, so, and God bless them for it. Um, <laughs> you know, so you're I... You're an honest broker. <laughs> yes. So, of course, you're, you're being... Um, you're, people are attempting to use you every day, but that's no different from being a political reporter in any country, in any situation. Yeah. Um, just this is wilder and with less structure. I remember uh, in just a student of history, you know, Kennedy, the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy, the summit with Khrushchev in Vienna that uh, broke down and ultimately led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, where he'd come back and he, he knew that he was in trouble and he would consult with the top of the New York Times, top of the Washington Post, in order to talk through the, uh, right. the issues, what was at stake, how to manage, and it was a much more controlled and, and so Obama was kind of the inheritor ultimately of that, but Trump has disrupted it completely. Completely. Um, let's turn to Washington. Uh, you know, we had Minneapolis, Atlanta, but you know, Washington is sort of the epi- is an epicenter in right. the campaign for racial justice and the unrest in the country. And just what's it like? What does the city feel like these days? I mean, is yeah. it as Simon said earlier? Doesn't get to Washington much. Right. You can't get to Washington these days. Right. Is it siege and fear? Is it crisis and hope, or some of all of that? I think it's some of all of that. I mean. I, I interviewed President Trump on Friday um, and I, so I had to get to the White House and, um, and I was at the White House the day before for, another, for interviewing another official. So you go there in a car and you can't really get there anymore because blocks, you know, three or four blocks uh, ahead of Lafayette uh, Square are occupied by different protesters. I mean, you see different levels of protests each day, but they're basically camping out there and um it's it's like a fortified zone now i mean they have they have built this sort of um fortress effectively with fencing and other um you know guards and police and law enforcement it it does look like the white house itself is under siege and you got to remember the way the people in the white house see it is you know they're on hostile territory you know this is not i mean trump made this comment well let's have MAGA night at the, at the White House tonight, you know, with all my supporters. Well, you know, you'll find five of them in Washington, D.C. It's, it's a town that despises Donald Trump. And the anger and the fervor around the White House is, is visceral. Um, and obviously we saw that, the, you know, with the infamous um, clearing of the protesters. Yes. And, and I want to just drill on that a little bit more. I mean, is this a different order of magnitude of siege? It seems to me that Trump has felt he's always under siege, you know, from, right. the, from the moment he became president, was sworn in, and then it was the size of the crowd, and it just went from there. But are we in a different order of magnitude of a perpetual sense of siege in the Trump White House? Or is this new territory? 
And, 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 is, and if so, is Trump new, more vulnerable than he has been previously? The answer is yes to both questions. Um, he feels deeply aggrieved um, by the fact that events have happened, exogenous events that he believes are not his fault and have ruined what he was, he was, I won't say cruising to re-election, but he had a, a, a very, very, very good run. It was at least um, 50-50, at least 50-50 oh, in January. Okay. So well, let, let's go back to December. Let's think about December, right? You had a booming economy. You had the lowest unemployment rate. You had the lowest African-American, Hispanic, you know, he would rattle it off uh, in, in, in living memory. You had, well, since like the 60s or something, I mean, it was incredible unemployment rates. You had incredible um, stock market. You had strong growth. You had relative peace, nothing that had really happened, um, external events. You, 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 America was um, not in a particularly bad spot with North Korea. There was relative calm there. Okay, there were some problems with Iran, but it was nothing more than the usual skirmishing. Trump was talking about drawing down from Af Afghanistan. And you had a democratic primary field that was heading towards nominating a socialist. Exactly. Or someone that Trump could, Trump would have called a communist. Exactly. So, and then you saw, you know, the, the election in, in Britain with Jeremy Corbyn, you know, tanking and Boris. And all of these things were lining up beautifully for Donald Trump. By the way, and, and he, had, he had an excellent campaign machine that was raising stunning amounts of money, going around the country, holding these, you know, giant adoring rallies, which were like a, almost a, a punk rock concert. And then the coronavirus hits. And Trump doesn't want to acknowledge it because any public acknowledgement of it would have disrupted his stock market. So when, um, I forget her name, Nancy Massonnier from the, the Centers for Disease Control, she made a public comment in late February. This is late February. It was, the virus was already in America. And she, she, she dared to suggest that perhaps um, this virus was not contained and actually could be a real problem. Trump went berserk. Yes. Because he wanted there to be positive talk uni, uni, you know, universally across his administration to keep the stock market frothy. And when he realized in sort of around March 13, that this thing was something that he couldn't control by tweet or he couldn't control by bullying, executive actions, various other things, this sort of, um, I wouldn't call it panic, but um, anxiety sort of set into the White House. And then you just had this series of events where you've, you've had um, civil unrest, huge racial um, tensions, and Trump does not do well in polls when race is the dominant issue. So what's happened in the last month is he has slipped out of his normal polling range. And this is of grave concern to his political team. For Trump to win, he needs to be around 95% with Republicans. He, he needs to have the base completely revved up. He's seen his Republican support soften a little bit. He's been wiped out among independents. The swing voters are all breaking Biden's way. There's a historic gender gap. Women do not like Donald Trump. They never did, but they've, they've, they've squarely sided with Biden. And then you're seeing a hollowing out of the suburbs, an acceleration of a trend that's been going on for years and years and years. So 
Biden's very, very well positioned right now. And Trump's sort of flailing to try and figure out a way to define him. Um, there are people I talk to on Trump's team who are not happy with the strategy taken so far to try and, uh, you know, sleepy Joe. They, their view is this is sort of the wrong tack because what they need to be doing is demonizing him and making him seem to be a threat to people. Whereas what they've actually accomplished doing is making him seem congenial and harmless. Um, so they're flailing around for a line of attack on Biden. Meanwhile, Donald Trump's out there making unforced errors every day. And I'd say right now, uh, the polling is as bad as I've seen it. Um, you know, you had at some points in 2016 comparable polling, but it's just, it's, it's brutal right now. It is. I mean, uh, this, yeah. there was a CNN poll last week, the New York Times uh, this morning uh, has, uh, a four, I think, a 14 point lead. But when you see a five in front of the number for Biden's polling, that's exactly. really dangerous territory that's right. for a president. But let's talk about the COVID since it's really... Well, so, no, but just on that point... It, it just it, seems sitting here. Yes, sir. I was just going to say on that point, it's a, it's a really important point because, look, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were the two most historically disliked candidates running against each other. The problem Trump has with Biden is Biden's not that disliked. When you look inside his polling, the, 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 the metric they look at very closely is the very unfavorable metric. So when a poll, when a pollster calls someone and says, what is your, do you, do you have a very unfavorable opinion of this candidate? Hillary was up ahead of Biden on a, you know, close to 20 points on that metric. People in the Republican party had been educated to despise the Clintons for 30 years. That's not the case with Joe Biden. There isn't the animosity there. And so what Trump has to do with Biden is quite different than what he had to do with Hillary. He actually has to now with Biden at 50%, win back voters who have decided and are telling pollsters they're gonna vote for Biden. And at this point, after five years of the Trump shtick, that's a really difficult thing to do because most people don't have malleable opinions of Donald Trump. And once they make up their mind, it is quite difficult to, to peel them back. I think what uh, I think what Trump is going to do is say, uh, to, I think you're right about everything you say about the perceptions of Biden and where he is. But if I was a, on the Trump team, I would say Biden is a socialist. I mean, he may not look like a socialist, but he's, his party is controlled by the socialists. And mm -hmm. you're going to get the worst of all of democratic radicalism uh, right. if you vote for Joe Biden and, you know, use that. Um, but just underneath, uh, privately, as Trump sees what's maybe coming at him, does he have a higher opinion of Biden privately than he does publicly? Nope. He has a, <laughs> if anything, uh, no. Trump genuinely, and I can tell you this because I mean, I've, I've talked to him about Biden many times, um, and I've talked to many of his staff who've talked to him about Biden in private settings. No, he thinks Biden is, um, is senile and, um, and, right. and not very bright. Um, and can, it, it drives him crazy that Biden's polling the way he is and managing to keep a low profile and basically that he can't land a glove on Biden and Biden's not engaging with Trump on his turf. He's not getting into the culture wars with Trump in the way that Trump would love him to. They want nothing more than Biden to come out and really pick a fight with Trump because that's where he thrives. But Biden's not doing that. He's sort of bobbing and weaving, doing virtual events. Um, 
his posture towards the virus is completely different from Trump. So Biden's really stuck the course by taking this virus seriously, wearing a mask, strictly following the, the public health guidance. Whereas Trump is sort of, I think got ahead of public opinion on the virus and really was trying to sort of egg on this reopening and bringing crowds together and rallies. And I tell you what the campaigns found, and I'm just talking for people in the campaign in the last couple of days, they've actually, it's, it's actually dawned on them that a lot of their supporters, because they're elderly, Trump's base is an elderly base. They're more concerned about yeah, the look virus. look at Florida and Arizona. Correct. Florida and, and Arizona in particular. They're more yeah. concerned about the virus than, than, than Trump's team um, figured. So that's another problem. I, I, I think that uh, what seems to be communicated from uh, Trump and the White House is uh, it's over or it's over to the extent we can deal with it. And um, he's banking everything on a vaccine. And then that'll be the end of the crisis and America will get back to normal. And uh, I, I think, uh, but I, I do think a lot of people, I think the crowd size in Tulsa was a reflection in part of people just being uneasy about being in large crowds. Yeah, you can do 3000 seats in Arizona yesterday but it's tough to, tougher to fill 20,000 seats uh, in an arena, you know, as you're, as you're campaigning. Um, I want to ask you about the Trump-Pence relationship because I think it's going to come into closer focus when Biden makes his vice presidential selection. And suddenly, uh, if you're Trump, you're looking at your ticket against the Biden ticket and saying, do I have the, is this, am I as strong as I, so what is the relationship that Trump and Pence have and does it run deep? And do you see any circumstances in which Trump would entertain replacing Pence or rethink his place on the ticket? Uh, no, I don't think he's going to um, entertain replacing Pence on the ticket. I think there was a fleeting moment um, where he did uh, entertain that, um, but I think it was not particularly developed or serious. And I think the media made much more of it than it really was. Um, the idea that Trump would pick Nikki Haley, she was the one that everyone was talking about, is absurd. He, he doesn't trust her. Um, it's just not going to happen. Um, their relationship, Trump doesn't, have a, Trump doesn't have a particularly deep relationship with anyone. Um, he trusts Pence, I think. Uh, he, you know, Pence has been a dutiful soldier. Um, Pence is the most on-message guy publicly and privately. I remember I was... Um, <laughs> I, uh, I traveled with Pence, um, a couple of years ago. Well, I've traveled with him a few times, but I remember this, this really stuck with me. I, I guess it was, um, must've been 2017, but I was flying with him on air force two to, um, uh, Unger to the UN general assembly. And, you know, they took me up into the front cabin to talk to Pence and, um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is, could be interesting. They said, do you want to do an off the record with Pence? And I said, yeah, great. And he, you know, he looks into, you know, looks sort of looks into my eyes. He's got this like thousand yard stare and he sort of puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Jonathan off the record. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be really interesting. And he says, Donald Trump is doing an amazing job. And it's one of the most undercovered stories in Washington. It just started like waxing lyrical about Trump. The same stuff he would have said on Fox news the night before. It's just, there is no, if there's a private Pence, I'm not aware of anyone who's really, who, who, who is, you know, sorry, if there's a private Pence who is revolted by Trump or has strong feelings, against him, I'm not aware of anyone who's seen it. Uh, maybe his wife at some point, but, um, 
they see him as someone who, if they cut him loose, it would depress the base and it would really um, turn off evangelicals. Yeah. And that would be a huge problem for Trump. It would. I mean, I, I think it's underappreciated how much Pence me- meant in 2016 to have the yeah. evangelicals come across to him. But I would think that Trump thinks, well, I have them now. They're for me because they know where I am on judges. They know where I am on uh, abortion and, they, and, and other things. But I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. One other thing about um, Pence, uh, he came here, you know, shortly after uh, Trump took office and he made a terrific impression. He was superb in representing a president that the country was, this country was most uncertain about and what the relationship would be like. And he performed a real service for the alliance uh, in coming out here. And he was just, he was just very, very good. And I think that's a real asset uh, for Australia to have in a turbulent world. And when you don't know where things are going to go on a regular basis. Um, let's see, just uh, inside the White, just back inside the White House, you have a new press secretary. How's she, how's she doing? <laughs> and, uh, and what do you think, what role is she playing? And right. is she, just what are the atmospherics around yeah. Well, her role is to create um, conflict with journalists that can be turned into short clips that can go viral on conservative media and be replayed on Fox News. Her, her role is very well defined. It's, it's to have these moments where, like, Trump is running as much as anything in 2020 against the media, against the news media. Um, and his campaign are almost more animated by the fight with the media than they are by the fight with Joe Biden. So what she does in the press conferences is, you know, Jim Acosta from CNN, who's one of their favorite foils, you know, whatever, he'll ask a question and she'll say, well, I'm glad you asked that Jim. And then she'll go to her notes and read out 20 attack lines against CNN I mean, it's very different to what we're used to from a, a press secretary, you know, historically. But that's her role. Um, in some senses, it doesn't matter who the press secretary is. It makes no difference to my life. Uh, I don't really deal with the press shop that much, except that I give them visibility. You know, before I have a story, I go to them for comment. But I don't get my information from the press team. I have, you know, if they decided tomorrow, the press team, we've cut off Jonathan as one of the previous press secretaries, the you know, first one at one point did do that because they were angry at a story I wrote. It makes no difference in my life whatsoever because there's plenty of other people who are going to leak and I don't actually need to deal with the press team. Um, so, you know, it, it, to me, it's sort of a meaningless thing apart from the fact that she seems to be good at energizing conservative media. Uh, the, the last question I want to ask you before we get to uh, our uh, wonderful our audience is um, this has changed. I want to go back where we started. This is different than anything we've seen before. The relationship between the press and the president that for the, a, pre, a president to call the press the enemy of the people is just sort of amazing. And then on the other side of the press, you've just seen the coverage degenerate in many instances into just hostile coverage. It's a very hostile work environment for it, the president, a president to be under. Can, um, can this ever get back to normal? Or, or has this experience been so searing for you and your colleagues that it's going to take quite a bit of time to come back to what would be the normal interplay between a president and the media and, and how that serves a democracy? 
and and uh, and make it work better. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think it's going to be a very different. If, if Biden wins, it will be a different dynamic, just because he is so different, and his team will be quite different. Um, and and the news media, as a whole, leans quite far to the left in America. Uh, it's just a fact. Um, and Republicans, I don't think, get a particularly fair shake in the news media. A lot of stories are you have opinion woven into them in subtle ways that, that the deck stack against them. Trump makes it pretty easy often just by lying and saying things that are just blatantly, you know, out of bounds. So I think that's emboldened a lot of journalists to drop their standards. And we've seen, I think, some pretty reckless coverage and a degeneration into uh, journalists viewing themselves as anti-Trump activists. Um, and so I think the steadiness and the restraint has gone uh, for, from a lot of the coverage, which is, um, in my view, very problematic. Uh, I think it can definitely change. Um, but, you know, a lot of it, I try and tune out of a lot of it and just try and report it out and cover it because it, it's, it's, it's not serious. Like, I don't, okay, enemy of the people, yeah, fine. But I don't have much patience for the whining, the, the, the whining about how hard it is to be a White House reporter in the age of Donald Trump. I mean, most of us in the White House press corps, you know, we're earning decent salaries, sitting in an air-conditioned room, uh, and the president's nasty about us on Twitter. You know, you know, I wrote a story about him he really hated. He was calling me fake news on Twitter and all that. I don't give a shit. You know, it's like, if you can't take that, and you know, the whining that goes on about Trump, when there's actually real threats to journalists in different countries overseas, and sometimes you see reporters in, in the US covering Trump try and claim like, the threats that, that they're facing in this climate, you know, is comparable to some of our comrades in, you know, Saudi Arabia and some of these other countries. It, it's just not comparable. And, you know, you can, Trump, you know, they call him an authoritarian and all of these things. Well, he's a pretty lousy authoritarian because, you know, he hasn't actually, you know, with all the talk of tightening up the libel laws and, you know, chilling the, the power of the free press and all of these lawsuits it doesn't work it, it doesn't hasn't work. happened and all of the big news outlets have thrived under donald trump financially donald trump has been a godsend to the new york times it's been a godsend to nbc it's been a godsend to cnn on the financial front so you know the washington post their subscriptions are through the roof so i think there's a lot of crocodile tears uh going on and i have limited patience for it It's fantastic. And before turning over to Simon, all I want to say is you will be around long after he is gone and long after Joe Biden is gone. And that hope so. proves the point. <laughs> you will. You will. <laughs> Simon, over to, over to you. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Uh, what a fantastic uh, conversation, uh, guys. Um, I, I got a ton out of that. Um, particularly, Jonathan, that insight you had about the game that the media themselves and the, uh, are a target and that's a big part of his political strategy. Uh, the way you, you put that so succinctly, I thought was 
was terrific to, to, for us to hear. Um, what I want to do is turn to a few questions that, that came in when people registered. And, and Jonathan, there's, I'm going to bundle two here. And they're really about the polls. Katie Richards, who was a University of Sydney student, and Evan Brandes from the Norton Rose Fulbright group um, ask a similar question. And that is, I mean, you'd, we've all got sort of scars on our back, uh, tire marks on our back from 2016 with polls. But I'm just wondering you and your reporting and perhaps that of your colleagues, how are you approaching sort of the polling and reporting on the polling and being guided by it at this stage? You guys were talking about that earlier. Mm. Um, you know, we see plus nines, plus tens in right. poll averages right now. I think right. at the same point in 2016, Clinton was plus six. Right. Um, your sense of have polls gotten better? How are you guys approaching it? My assumption is they haven't gotten better. I look at um, trend lines more than in any individual poll. And national polls are only useful in the sense of giving you uh, a sort of general feel for the mood uh, of the country. And if you start to see that margin really blow out, then it, then it does become meaningful. But the problem we have is we don't have a lot of high quality state polling um, in, the, in the battleground states. It's reasonable, it's fine. But what has been clear in the last three months is all of the trend lines have been bad for Donald Trump. And that's why, that's why I think why people are paying, are making, I think people, some people are sticking their necks out a little bit too far. So I was on a, um, an MSNBC channel, uh, panel the other night, which, which felt like people were writing obituaries for Donald Trump and for Trumpism. And I sort of said, I think we need to have a little humility uh, given what happened last time. And I don't believe that things are out of reach. But in saying that, you, you really would be, uh, delinquent if you didn't observe what has happened in the last three months uh, across across all polls, whether they're Trump-friendly polls like Rasmussen, which weight towards Republicans, or whether they're you know the New York Times-Siena poll, whether it's likely voters, whether it's registered voters, whether it's swing state polls. And then when you go inside the polls, you see really profound problems for Donald Trump. You have a very big problem in the sense which I was talking about before, which is independent voters. The, you know, three to five percent of voters that are swinging from um, from one candidate to the next, they are breaking very heavily towards Joe Biden. And the other problem they have is Donald Trump just I, I think suburban women are just gone. Right. And and it's women across the board. It's right. it's it doesn't matter if they're educated or not educated. They, they have turned on Donald Trump and, and I don't think there's any winning them back. So when you talk to campaign advisors, they're, they're thinking about it, you know, let's take Pennsylvania as an example. The way they're thinking about a state like Pennsylvania is let's look at the rural counties where we did really well in 2016 and let's see if we can squeeze a little more out of that yeah, lemon. Yeah, right. Let's yeah. see if we can find a few more, couple more percentage points of rural white voters and boost the thing. We're probably not going to increase our black vote particularly, although they're, they're optimistic to some extent with older black men uh, mm. seem to like Donald Trump um, more than they have uh, other Republican candidates. 
Mm-hmm. They're not doing well with Hispanic voters, but I think it's going to be a county by county strategy. And if, if Trump can't get back to his sort of 45%, 46%, 47%, I just, it's going to be very hard for him to, yeah. to win. He needs to get back into his normal range uh, where he has stayed pretty consistently throughout this presidency. If he stays in this suppressed range, it's like, unless yeah. the polling is just totally aberrant, He's not going to win. Yeah. Um, that, you, you, you bring up a, a, another question that um, a, a very, very regular attendee to our events and our online events, Tony Booth, asks, and it's a question we've been asking too, Jonathan, that is exactly what is the strategy at this point uh, for the president to get reelected? It, it's, you know, the last couple of weeks in particular, seem to be directed at, again, that demographic that are, we would, you know, colloquially call his base, but that ain't going to get it done. He's got to grow that, it would seem. Um, you know, he won so narrowly in 16. Yeah. You know, these razor-thin margins in three states were the difference between winning and losing, yeah. uh, losing the popular vote, but grinding it out that way, as we all know, in the Electoral College. You've got to, it seems to me, he maybe you can do that again but but with it seems there's so much energy among democrats to get rid of him that you know just are there more votes in that well that you were just alluding to that they're thinking of going to i, I just i don't know i'd be very interested in your thought on it. is that yeah. going to be enough or is he's got to flip some people who are maybe trending away from him just your thoughts on yeah. what you think and moreover what you're hearing from the campaign about how they think they're going to get this done so one of the things people in the campaign have recognized in the last few weeks is that there isn't really, there hasn't really been a, a clear strategy that they've been grasping around for different hmm. ways to, to define Joe Biden. And if you contrast it to 2012 to, to um, Obama's reelect by this stage, in fact, much before this, probably by April, they had defined Mitt Romney. Yeah. They had defined Mitt Romney as a heartless plutocrat who, you know, cast all these ordinary people aside to enrich himself and was not for you, doesn't care about you. They had defined him in such a crisp way. They'd, they'd spent a decent amount of money doing so and they'd been very disciplined on message. You, you can't tell me what that definition is for Biden. To be fair to Trump, they've lost some time with the coronavirus and all these other crises, but they're running out of time. They don't have much time. And I was talking to one of Trump's advisors today about this. And they said, I don't know why we're sitting on all this cash. Why aren't we spending our money every day on television? I mean, they've got an extraordinary amount of cash. They're raising about 2 million bucks a day online. And I actually don't understand why they're not blitzing Biden in a consistent way and just defining him in a a clear frame that's going to really hurt him. And the Biden people are delighted. They're absolutely delighted. And, and I don't think they can fathom what the strategy is because, look, I cover it every day and I've covered the, it's much of the same people that I covered in 2015. So I've been covering these people for five years. I can't tell you what the strategy is. And I literally spend every minute of every hour of every day covering <laughs> these people. I cannot tell you what the strategy is and what his overall message and pitch to be reelected is. Um. They do, right? There's a good point about the money. Um, like they, they are sitting on just this f- mountain of yep. resources. And mm-hmm. 
And Pascal was talking about, you know, unleashing the death, the Death Star, and and that was like two weeks ago or so, I think. Um, is there any evidence of the Death Star being unleashed? You know, in in media, online. Uh, uh, I mean, they've run some ads. That, you know, they did a, a sort of a, a hit on China, Biden being owned by China, and they sort of ran a bunch of ads on that, but. Then they'll flip to now it's Joe being Joe Biden being senile. Uh, okay, is he a malevolent evil genius China corrupt guy, or is he sleepy senile Joe who doesn't know where he is? I mean, these messages don't really coexist very well. Either he is a scheming corrupt evil guy, or he doesn't know where he is. I think where they're starting to coalesce, and I expect you're going to see this in the next few weeks is around the idea that Joe Biden is a puppet for the radical left. And that was kind of getting to what Bruce was saying earlier. What Bruce basically laid out is actually where I'm starting to hear that they're heading. And to try and tie Joe Biden to the looting and the violence and the excesses of the left going down right now and trying to really wedge him by trying to force him to condemn what some of these acts that are going on that frankly horrify a lot of independent voters. Um, so that, I think that is where they're heading, um, whether they can pull it off. I don't know. Yep. Okay. Um, look, no conversation, um, like this, an Australian think tank talking to, uh, Washington can be complete, uh, without bringing up China. Um, and, and it brought, you brought it up just in that last question in terms of Trump's electoral strategy. Um, but how is you know, we're shifting away from the campaign now. I'm sort of asking you to sort of sort of put another lens on for just a second. What's the temperature in Washington at the moment? We, you know, through your colleague, uh, Bethany, uh, Alan Ibrahimian, yeah. uh, who runs um, Axios, the China part of yeah. Axios, um, she, in a fascinating webinar we had with her about three, four, might be six weeks ago now, actually. Right. She thought she was detecting and laid out some pretty compelling evidence for Trump and the Republicans are going so hard on China, uh, particularly looking for a scapegoat on coronavirus, that it was starting to fray what up until now has been a pretty robust bipartisan acknowledgement in D.C. of China as strategic threat to the United States. And I think a couple of questions. Number one, your sense of that. And two, where do we land after the 2020 election with respect to that, at least that mindset and perhaps some yeah. policy that might come from it, either from a Biden administration or a second Trump administration? I see it a little bit differently from that, from what she sounds like she described to you. Um, Trump substantively hasn't been that tough on China. And actually, someone like Chuck Schumer, Democratic leader in the Senate, is pushing for much tougher action Mm. substantively. So when I, I'll give you a concrete example. So when I interviewed Trump on Friday, I said to him, why haven't you um, enacted any sanctions against Chinese officials for the camps in Xinjiang? And Trump says out loud, I did not think he was going to say this. It got himself into a fair bit of trouble. Oh, because I was doing a trade deal. I didn't want to interrupt the trade deal. And you saw Nancy Pelosi, she took, the comments in my interview and just blew it up on Monday, you know? So you have Democrats saying basically more hardline than him on, on the substance. 
what Trump does is he goes way further than they do rhetorically and he'll entertain, you know, unsubstantiated theories about the origins of the virus and things like that, where Democrats aren't willing to play. But I, I, I don't agree with that assessment. I think Bethany's a brilliant reporter and she breaks a ton of news on China, mm-hmm. but in terms of her domestic American political assessment, I disagree. I think both sides are dug in hardline anti-China and you have leaders of the democratic party who substantively wish Trump would go further against China than he has. Um, and Trump's not worried about um, his own party on China. He's worried about being out hawked by Chuck Schumer and the left. And wow. whenever he's thinking about, oh, am I going tough enough? It's very much in that mind frame of not wanting to give Chuck Schumer an opportunity to say Trump's you know, big talk, but he's, he's actually soft on China. And I'll just wow. say one more thing on China. Please, which sure. is Please. Yeah. The, reason, the reason I think... I'm very pessimistic. Well, I don't know. It depends how you want to define pessimism. I think it's, it's getting darker and darker, this, this relationship. And the reason I think that is it's good politics. Yeah. Terrific politics. So Trump, for the first three years of his administration, was quite ambivalent on China. He liked the tariffs. He liked, you know, being tough and all that sort of stuff. But he also wanted to maintain a personal relationship with Xi Jinping. He didn't... Uh, he, he didn't want to go quite as far as some of his real hardline advisors like um, Pompeo and Navarro and others. And what was sort of keeping him in line was he did have people around him saying, you know, like Stephen Mnuchin, his treasury secretary, you know, let's not disrupt the great stock market. Let's not do too much. But now what he's got is he's got his whole national security team, which are all basically all of them are hardlines against China. And then he gets his pollster, John McLaughlin, coming in with Brad Pascal saying, you know, overnight they've become China hawks because it's politically convenient. So you've had this merging of his political advice with his national security advice, and it's all in the same direction. And then you've just got a couple of doves sitting out there, very lonely, Larry Kudlow and Stephen Mnuchin. But all the advice he's getting on daily basis, it's great for you politically and screw those bastards on the substance. Right. And that's all he's hearing every day. Right. Huh. Um, uh, we're, we're almost out of time. It's, it's, it's probably um, got to be our last question, but, um, and I'm going to steal it from, from um, sort of Bruce didn't get to ask about, about Trump Morrison, but just Australia's profile, Jonathan, in, 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 in DC. Um, very curious, you know, you as an Australian probably have a, a, a special awareness and sensitivity uh, to this that, that I think a lot of perhaps other reporters might not. But, you know, how the visibility of Australia, recognition of some of the, you know, mm-hmm. leaning a little forward on, on China in particular, on a few measures like that, Aftermath of the of the state visit, Australia Morrison being invited to this uh, expanded uh, G7, the sense of you know the visibility of, mm. of of Australia and as an ally in DC mm. with a with a an administration that seems you know to use the words very transactional. I'd, I'd be just really interested in your sense of how Australia Inc uh, is is uh, the profile and and its standing uh, in DC and pr- perhaps especially around the administration. Well, I think um, Morrison made a terrible mistake by allowing Joe Hockey to step down as ambassador. <laughs> I think Joe Hockey, uh, I cannot imagine someone being more effective than Hockey was here. He, he like 
just so you understand, I mean, because I deal with all these people every day. I mean, to have the relationship that he had with Trump himself and with his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and and frankly with Mnuchin and with, you just went across the government with the intelligence community, hockey, they would take the call. I remember sitting with Trump and he was asking me about Joe. Like it's a totally different, you, you just, that level of relationship, you can't re-replicate that quickly. Yeah. I guess, is it Sinodinus who's replacing him? Yeah, Arthur, yeah, Arthur He's just not going to be able to do it. Joe had this very early on in the campaign in 2016 yeah. when everyone was ignoring them, Joe actually built these relationships and they never forgot it. And I know that because when I was, it's not just Joe talking crap. It's when I go in and talk to them in the West Wing, they will bring up Joe. Like yeah. it's legit. It's actually authentic, the relationships yeah. he built. And so we had a terrific profile under Joe Hockey, more than, I, I, again, I don't want to compare it to previous ambassadors because I don't, I wasn't, I don't feel I have enough um, insight to know what it was mm-hmm. like with, with Beasley. But uh, I just tell you that the access that Joe had and the relationships he had at that level are not going to be easy to replicate. Yeah, no, uh, that'd be our assessment too. Um, you know, one of the great privileges I've had being the CEO of the US study centers when I'm in DC and maybe it was just Joe being Joe too, but you'd yeah. get invited these amazing events. He would yeah. be able to stage up at the residence in particular yeah. and the, you know, Mulvaney and Cudlow and, and right. the idea that the Australian ambassador can sort of hold yeah. court like that was just phenomenal. Um, and I don't and, know, I, I yeah. don't know if he received the credit for it back home. I, I just don't know. Cause I didn't read, I, I don't read the Australian press, but I can just tell you like he should, he, he was one of the great ambassadors that Australia had to yeah. the United States. Yeah, no, I, I think yeah. in a way that we may not have appreciated when the appointment was made, but turned out to be precisely, right. I think, the right the right character for the job. In in a way where that personal relationship, I think, yes, is really key to effective diplomacy <laughs> with 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 this administration. Hey, look, Jonathan, looks that's just an amazing hour we've had from you. Thank you so much. Um, oh, thanks for having me. Um, it's great to hear an Australian accent and <laughs> mindset being brought to bear, and sort of that the cut through. And I'm sure it's a great asset for you in DC too, by the way, just as it probably was for Joe. I think that forthrightness and being able to state things clearly for what they what they are. Um, I think it, it holds Australians in, in good stead in the right circumstances in, in, in Australia. It's just great to hear that coming down the line today with your takes on American politics. And um, so thank you. And, and again, congratulations for look the goals you're kicking over there. Uh, the, the, if you if you're in a baseball stadium, the sound of a home run being hit, uh, <laughs> the, the, that that's a that's another that's a Jonathan Swan scoop, and and um, the way it lights up um, social media and the channels we're following here. Um, look well, my for- my my mum is on this call, so I have to say hello <laughs> to my mum. <laughs> um, and and that was a spectacular photo of you and your mum from your wedding, by the way. Uh, oh, <laughs> That did the rounds as well. But yeah. um, look, keep, keep on keeping on, Jonathan. It'd be great to have you back out here in person and, uh, and to see you perhaps in D.C. as well. Thank you, Bruce, for, for the honours today. That was a terrific uh, back and forth with Jonathan. Um, 